You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Gaslit London streets lie shrouded in fog. 18-year-old Jane Alsop's at her father's house when a loud knocking startles her. She goes to the door, and in the darkness, a cloaked man says urgently, We've caught Spring Hill Jack here in the lane. Believing he's a policeman, Jane rushes to bring him a candle. But when she hands it to him, she's shocked to see him spit blue fire from his mouth before he begins to claw at her with metallic fingers. She screams and struggles to escape as he tears at her clothing. And finally, she's rescued by her sister who pulls her back into the house. The cloaked stranger is seen to bound off across the field, for this was no policeman. This was Spring Hill Jack himself. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and in this episode, Dr. Karen Stolzno and I will interview Mike Dash about the mysterious figure known as Spring Hill Jack. This is an enduring legend which has been of interest to paranormal investigators and folklorists, as well as UFO enthusiasts and skeptics. Mike's research is fantastic, and while he is compiling it into a book someday, be sure to check the show notes for links to his website. He loves solving mysteries, and it shows in his work. Monster Talk. Do you want to tell listeners about what your latest projects are, like about what you're working on and what's been going on with you? Um. Oh, well, I don't know. It feels like it's a bit premature at this stage still. Um, well, you but... can talk about Swift articles. Oh, okay. I don't know if you checked out the latest uh, article that I did for Swift. It was a mini investigation um, into a place called Silvercliff Cemetery. Can you hear me at all? I can. Okay, because it's just to me. It's creepy because it sounds like you're really close, but I know you're really far away. Ah. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in a very silly mood. I apologize. I will. No, that that's good. That's uh, apt for for the show. Um, but I'll I'll start again. I just did an investigation or a mini investigation for uh, for Swift for the James Randi Educational Foundation, and it was into a place called Silvercliff Cemetery, and uh, it's one of the most haunted or the most haunted cemetery in America, or one of the most haunted mm, what, uh, cemeteries in America because they're all the most haunted. Is it egalitarian to believe that they're all equally haunted? I I think <laughs> I think that's the only the fair thing to say. The only fair thing to say. 
Um, but this this place, it's a beautiful little cemetery out in the middle of nowhere, and they've only got a occupancy rate of about 40%, so very uh, just scattered tombstones. But this place has been famous uh, for decades now for dancing blue lights, and uh, actually the source of all of the claims, or the main source, contemporary source, seems to be an article that appeared in National Geographic magazine back in 1969. Uh, and a lot of people, or what you'll find online if you go and Google Silvercliff Cemetery, are uh, lots of entries about um, this uh, original article. And people claim that the, the article was an investigation or it was some kind of feature. But really, it's just an afterthought. It's almost a postscript. Uh, and the, the author of the article, uh, I can't remember his name, um, Edward Lynham, I think it is, just in the the last paragraph or two of the article, and it's a it's a travel journal piece about Colorado and the Rockies, and he just mentions these strange blue lights that appear in this cemetery, and he goes and and checks them out, and anyway, he describes them as being this dim glow. Uh, yet over the course of decades, it's become the lights have become very different. Uh, instead, they're bright lights. They're like a, a lantern light, um, round lights the size of a silver dollar. Um, sometimes there are one or two lights. Other times they're just spread across the cemetery. Um, the original lights were blue and the lights nowadays can be red or green or pink, any color that you like. Uh, and so the, the claims have increased over the years, and um, but they, they really have taken on a life of their own. And so I went and checked out um, uh, the cemetery. It was actually in the course of going and visiting a, a fundamentalist Mormon compound, but that's another story altogether. Um, and uh, so I checked out the cemetery and uh, didn't actually see those particular lights myself, but came up with a couple of possible explanations for the lights. Most people, there was a, an investigation done or a short article by Skeptical Enquirer magazine going back uh, about 20 years ago. And the authors claim that the lights are reflections from the town, from passing traffic. And that's a possibility. I think that there are lots of explanations, not just one explanation. Yeah. If you so, go, if you, if, if you go to a, a cemetery at night and the, the claim is there are lights, then any light would seem to be a hit, right? That's right, and there are lots of natural and human-made sources for lights. There are stars and there's the moon, but people claim that the best time to see these lights uh, is on a, a very dark night when there isn't any, when it's overcast and there's no moon. Um, and so there are just most, outside of that, I thought one of the the main things that came to mind were phosphenes. The possibility that uh, someone could be sitting out in this dark cemetery with no light for hours trying to see something. And, uh, you know, when you rub your eyes or when you sneeze and you see stars, um, those little lights that appear in your eyes when there isn't actually a light source, uh, I thought that that could be one potential source for these lights in the cemetery or another could be this new receptor that's been found um, and that, that only sees the colour blue, only picks up that colour. Uh, so I think that could account for maybe those original sightings of this dim blue glow. But if people want to go and check out the article on Swift anyway, and there's more information there, and go and Google it yourself too and uh, and see some of the other claims that are out there. We can, but, um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Sounds good. Thank you. So, yeah, that was a fun little diversion looking into that. But I think one of the first collaborative skeptical investigations I ever did was with Kylie Sturgis for the Pinjara Cemetery. 
Um, That's right. Uh, that was in Perth somewhere? Yeah, well, wherever Pinjara is. <laughs> that was more her. You know, she drove a long way to go out there and help me, uh, you know, test a hypothesis. And it turned out to be correct. And in that case, it was a passing car had illuminated a stationary uh, tombstone. And on video, it looked like uh, something just came to life and flew across the screen. But I was able to stabilize it and show that, no, what was actually happening was the illumination was passing over the tombstone, but because the camera was moving, it created this weird illusion. So kind of a fun yeah. thing. Yeah. Once again, I think that's accounting for a lot of the claims in uh, Silvercliff Cemetery, though these very shiny marble tombstones. Yes, they're very reflective. Yeah. And yeah. people think, oh, the, the town's too far away. It's really only about half a mile away. And there are two towns there uh, right next to each other. So there are a lot of light sources. Well, it's always, <laughs> it's always bugged me that people would expect cemeteries and graveyards to be haunted like like what well, the people who die have no ties to those places uh, well yeah i think there are two theories i think there's one theory that of course cemeteries must be haunted because there are so many people buried there and then there's a, another claim that people when they they do come back uh and they do haunt uh they will haunt the places that they visited during their lifetime they're not going to be in a place where they're just the body is buried Right. I, 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 like, like I could imagine really easily some sort of hypothesis that uh, you're tethered to your physical body even after you die. But, you know, it seems like cremation would cure that or, you know, and eventually your body rots <laughs> away. I, I don't know. It, it, I, don't, I don't think there's much uh, uh, plausibility to that uh, in particular. Yeah, I, there are both theories there. And I, I think if you believe, then uh, you're going to come up with any any interesting theory. Um, to to explain any any qualms you've got. Yeah, and the thing is, though, I, I don't know, you're probably the same way, but I, I love cemeteries, and and people I think forget that cemeteries are generally built for the living. You know, <laughs> they're for you to go and reminisce and and think about the people who've died and spend time. That's but, right. But the, the memorial parks. Oh, and yeah. I think yeah. People uh, in previous times would go for strolls through cemeteries and have lunch, and um, they were social places. They were, and what really bugs me is modern cemeteries. They're so lazy. They build the like the flat tombstones so they can mow easier, and it's like really <laughs> that's the, what's so great about that. It's terrible. I like we want the fancy ornate. I ones. do. I, I love the, I love the ones with statues and 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 um, little mausoleums and. Um, uh, oh, me too. The, the ones in uh, New Orleans are fantastic. Oh, yeah. Those are really cool. I, I just uh, – th there's some really nice ones in Atlanta and uh, in Savannah. Yeah. some gorgeous ones. So Yeah. I went to the, the Bonaventure yeah. Cemetery. Um, that's in Savannah, isn't it? It and, is. Um, the famous one. Um, what's that book? The – in the Garden of Good and Evil, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Right, they, with the little crying girl. They've taken her out of the cemetery because people kept messing with her statue. Yeah, that's on display, I think, at a local museum instead. But I'd love to get to Resurrection Cemetery in Chicago sometime and check out the stories about Resurrection Mary. Yeah, well, and don't forget a lot of the voters come out of there at election time. So that's a great <laughs> <laughs> great time to see ghosts. Well, there you go. <laughs> Monster Dog. Today we're talking with Mike Dash, who is a paranormal investigator, historian, author, and former editor of Fortean Times. He's written numerous articles and several books, most recently The First Family, Terror, Extortion, and the Birth of the American Mafia. He also writes the Past Imperfect blog for Smithsonian.com. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Hey, Mike, I just, just kind of, this not related to monsters at all, but... Uh, 
really enjoyed your article about the uh, the family in Siberia. Uh, that was such a cool article. Yeah, it's been remarkably successful. I've never quite experienced anything like it. Actually, it's had something like two million page views. Quite wow! Generated. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? What what uh, what gels would be? I've been writing stories. That I've tried to get two million page views on for years, and this is the one that's kind of caught fire. It's interesting to see what it is that makes people sort of trigger those sorts of responses, actually. Yeah, and I have no idea because I've read a lot of your articles, and this was of similar quality, which was great. Uh, but uh, I, wow, that's fantastic. Congrats. Yeah, I mean, I think it, there's obviously an element of, you know, what would I do in those situations? How would I cope? Which, if, you know, we'll touch on this later on, no doubt. I mean, there's an element of this in why Spring Hill Jack is such a memorable figure and has survived in people's recollections a lot longer than similar bogeymen. Well, I tell you one thing it taught me for sure is that before you retreat into the wilderness, make sure you have some basic ceramic skills. <laughs> yes, that's the one thing they didn't seem to have with them. Or maybe they couldn't find any clay, but uh, yeah, yeah I, people have commented on that one, actually. You're right. But uh, I, I don't think we should judge them too harshly. You or I would have been dead a long time before they, uh, they were, I think. I believe you're correct. <laughs> well, can we link this one to the show notes as yeah, well? Yeah, I can throw that in the show notes for sure. <laughs> Apparently, it's a great thing to link to. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us an overview of, of the Spring Hill Jack story, the phenomena, and, and why you think he's such an enduring figure? Yes, well, the Spring Hill Jack story, as it is usually told, um, relates to a hideous demonic bogeyman, as we would say in Britain, or boogeyman, you might prefer to say, who turned up in London uh, at the very beginning of Queen Victoria's reign. We're talking about 1837-38 in the, in the winter then. Um, first of all, um, in villages around the outskirts of the town and later on inside London itself. What was remarkable about these stories was, well, I mean, there were a couple of things. Firstly, they were extremely ubiquitous. A lot of people had apparently witnessed this strange and terrifying creature. Secondly, and perhaps more intriguingly, Spring Hill Jack himself was some sort of shapeshifter in that the very first sightings referred to him in a wide variety of guises, everything from a, a ghost, a bear, a devil, a figure clad in armour, um, a, a figure who was a, a gigantic baboon even in one case. Um, and it's only over a period of time, a period of some weeks, that uh, he slowly metamorphosed into the figure that we now know from the sort of 40th and secondary literature, which is very much a devil figure, essentially. He was supposed to be a tall, thin, gentlemanly, had blazing red eyes, and um, his sort of signature move, essentially, was that he shot blue and white balls of fire out of his mouth when he attacked his victims, who were usually helpless young girls. I like the descriptions that he usually uh, vomited blue flames. That's correct, yes. Well, this is one of the, um, the, the things that's most commonly associated with him, although, of course, in fact, when you go back to the original sources, you discover that it wasn't quite as commonplace as uh, one might be led to believe. There are certainly two or three cases of eyewitnesses describing this happening. Um, and one of the things I've, be, I've looked into over the years is to what extent one could potentially duplicate this effect in a non-normal way. But the majority of cases, certainly later, certainly after 1838, the later versions of Spring Hill Jack, for want of a better word, we'll go into this later, no doubt, didn't exhibit this particular ability. This was unique to the Spring Hill Jack of London at the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign. Mm, I wish there'd been some evidence of that captured on film or something. 
<laughs> well, so, it all appeared just at the very beginning of photography. I mean, in 1837, photographs had just been invented, but you needed an exposure of 10 to 12 hours, so you weren't going to capture something as fleet of foot as a jack on a, an early plate, sadly enough. Yeah, and he's certainly been uh, appearing uh, even in recent years, hasn't he? There have been some... Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this, of course, is one of the fascinating things about him. And one of the things that's kept me researching for a very, I mean, I've never had a research project that's gone on as long as my Spring Hill Jack project. I began work on this uh, in the autumn of 1982, and I'm just about ready to publish my results now. And one of the reasons it's taken me so long is that it's a, he's a figure who crops up in all sorts of strange places and times. And, and you know, even re relatively recently, we've had very, very uh, cases which are very similar to Spring Hill Jack in places like Argentina, Somalia, um, and, and it, it's a it's a figure which has some sort of hold, I think, over people's minds and memories. And I can testify to this personally. I mean, my own interest in the subject really began in the early 1970s when I was a kid, and I used to get a a magazine called World of Wonder, which was published in Britain and was sort of an educational magazine. But it had a feature in it called Strange Stories, and one week, the strange story was about Spring Hill Jack, and it had, was illustrated by a rather dramatic picture of him sort of leaping out of the page towards you with his um, sort of balls of fire shooting out of his mouth. And it completely terrified me. And I was about 11 at the time. And you know, the, the, the thing that was scary about him, I think, was the way in which for two things. Firstly, he was described as essentially ageless. I mean, and, and this goes back again to the Spring Hill Jack legend, as it's usually told. He turns up in 1837, but he's last seen in his original British guise, at least, in Everton, which is a suburb of Liverpool, in 1904, which immediately says to you, well, it can't be a, a human being if this is the same person and he's lived that long and he's still agile and still apparently unchanging, then there must be something supernatural about him. And the second thing I think which is particularly terrifying and, and gets the imagination going about Spring Hill Jack, certainly in an 11-year-old boy, is, is the agility that's associated with him, the fact that he has this name and can leap over houses and so on. Of course, what that really means if you're 11 years old is there's no reason he can't appear on your windowsill that night in the middle of the night when your parents are asleep tapping on the window to be let in. And I think that's essentially what got me going about him. And what's that, that terror essentially is what's motivated me over the years. I'm sort of trying to, to defuse that 11-year-old boy's fear of the, of the dark, of the unknown, and of course of, of devils and demons as well. And it's kept me going for, you know, 30-odd years, this particular uh, project as a result. Wow, that is so similar to my background. It's the, and mine too, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the, I call it the things that used to scare the crap out of me as a child. <laughs> You've it, edited that. <laughs> it's it's such, a, such a driver. <laughs> well, I, and, and, for, and for good. I mean, you know, a lot of good work has come out of it, you know, certainly on your part, Blake, and hopefully my Spring Hill Jack work will be, you know, will, will do some good in terms of sorting out the wheat from the chaff, essentially. I mean, the, of all the subjects I've studied, and there have been a few over the years, I think that Spring Hill Jack, the, the, the original um, Spring Hill Jack, the one in the, the original sources, differs perhaps most dramatically from the one who appears in the secondary 14 sources in terms of just how unlike uh, the way in which he's portrayed in the sort of secondary works the original Spring Hill Jack was. Let's, let's talk about it just a little deeper. The, he has these powers. He can leap, he can jump. He can blow f blue flames. He has glowing eyes. Uh, he's dressed uh, a little bit oddly. Uh, iron claws. Yeah, yeah. He has iron claws. I forget about that. And then, but but somehow I, I, in the uh, the contemporary accounts, I, I'm not clear on this. It's not that he's a rapist. He's kind of a grabist. Is that his thing? That's right. I mean, we would today, I suppose, we'd call it sexual assault. Essentially, yeah. I mean, he he leaks out of you know sort of dark corners. And grabs young girls, I mean teenage girls, um, who are walking by. 
Um, and well, I mean, this is what he did in his two most famous assaults. And then, had these two assaults not happened, I, I think we wouldn't remember Spring Hill Jack today. I mean, the main reason for this being that the girls in question actually then did report him to the authorities, and there was a, a police investigation as a result. And a lot of people, of course, naturally assume that you know, if someone who's been has been attacked and goes to the authorities and, and uh, gets the magistrates looking for this person, well, there must be something in it. They're not going to be just lying about something like that. The, the first of these cases involved a girl called Jane Alsop, who lived in a lonely house uh, near Bow, which is in East London, but it was on the outskirts of London at this time. It was still a sort of semi-rural area, and her house was on a sort of back pathway that was led past some fields, essentially, and was several hundred yards, at least, from the sort of nearest other house. Um, and the story goes, and, and this is the story that Jane herself told, um, that on the 22nd of February 1838, at about nine in the evening, there was a violent knocking at the gate of this house in Bearbinder Lane in, in East London. And Jane was in the house with her elder sister and her two, two parents. And she went out uh, to find out what the problem was. And there was a, a tall, dark figure standing in the shadows. I mean, of course, this was before streetlights and anything else was available in the middle of winter. Um, who said, for God's sake, bring me a light, for we've caught spring Jack here in the lane. Jane went back indoors and she went to fetch a candle, which she brought out to this figure standing by the garden gate. And when she gave it to him, he held it up underneath his chin, which, of course, is the sort of classic Halloween posture with, which you do with a torch and telling a scary story at Halloween. But when she looked at his face in that light, she saw it had a sort of demonic aspect and the eyes were glowing like red balls of fire. And he then breathed his blue and white balls of flame into her face and then grabbed her and he started clawing at her back and her dress with his iron claws um, and pinned her head under his armpit and sort of started raking away at her. And she screamed, of course, and her sister came rushing out to try and help her. And between the two of them, after quite a long struggle that lasted at least a minute, apparently, she managed to finally to tear herself away with, you know, leaving sort of large chunks of her hair and with scratch marks on her as, as a result of this. In the second case, this was a few days later, about a week later, involving a girl called Lucy Scales, who was a butcher's sister from Limehouse, which is a little bit further into the city of London. So this is the city of London proper, but uh, still in the east end of it. Um, she and her sister were walking through uh, a narrow alley called Green Dragon Alley, um, just off the Thames. And they came across a, a tall figure standing in a corner of this alleyway. Um, who stepped forward and breathed blue flames into Lucy's face, leaving her in a fit of hysterics on the floor. In that particular case, there wasn't an assault beyond the breathing of the fire. Um, but those two cases together certainly convinced a lot of Londoners that there was something more than mere rumour to do with the, these strange stories of Spring Hill Jack. Until that point, a lot of people, certainly the, the newspaper reading class, the, the middle classes essentially, thought that Spring Hill Jack was essentially just a rumour, the sort of thing that servants would gossip about, but was just a, a wild, tall tale. And suddenly, especially in the case of Jane Alsop, who was herself from this sort of educated middle class, uh, you have someone from that from your own class who's reporting in fairly hysterical terms that she's been attacked by a very real person or a very real creature of some sort. And that brings the whole thing very firmly into focus and um, puts the whole thing into the newspapers in a major way for the first time as well. So he was predominantly known for attacking women, but there were some cases where he reportedly attacked men as well, weren't there? Yeah, I mean, and this, of course, is one of the intriguing things about it. I mean, I think there's one, you know, it's, it's all very well saying, well, you know, this is the sort of thing that sort of, you know, some sort of slimy pervert would do, essentially. I mean, there are loads of cases of men attacking young girls. It's not a very brave thing to do. It's not a very dangerous thing to do. But Spring Hill Jack, 
according to the stories that went around at the time, at least, was a rather more equal opportunity kind of a criminal. And he was also supposed to have beaten up a blacksmith, for example, and a muffin man. Now, you know, to take on a Victorian-era blacksmith, that's quite a lot to, uh, more challenging than a teenage girl. These are sort of rough, tough guys. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, from that point of view, of course, then that becomes a little bit more difficult to believe that this is just a, you know, an ordinary prankster or some drunken yob. I mean, he, he, he's constantly able to do this. I mean, there are, again, I mean... This is assuming that all these early stories are literally true, which, of course, is something that's very challengeable. But if if you read these early newspaper stories, there are probably 10 or 15 of these assaults. And most, you know, half of them at least probably are on men. Um, and you do think on that basis, you know, he's constantly getting away. No one's ever able to lay a finger on him. What's going on here? It doesn't sound quite as obvious. It's actually a sort of genuine human being. And it's those sorts of suspicions that the paranormal authors use when they write about Spring Hill Jack to imply that he's something more than a man, essentially. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So can you tell us about some of the attempts by law enforcement and the public to actually catch Spring Hill Jack? Well, if we stay in 1838 for a minute, there are a couple of significant things here to, to say. The first is that there were significant attempts to try to catch Spring Hill Jack. Jane Alsop and Lucy Scales both went to the local uh, police office, which is a sort of magistrate's court that existed. This is in the very early days of modern law enforcement in London. The Metropolitan Police that we know of today had only been founded in 1829. Um, and it was still a rather small, rather um, badly regarded, in many cases, force in this, this early stage. Um, and there was a second set of, of authorities, effectively, that worked in parallel at this time. So that each of the magistrates who ran London's police offices, and there were about 10 of these offices, had their own force of detectives who were um, linked to their, their court and were paid by them. And they could... Um, assign these people to do an investigation. So in the case of Jane Allsop, there were two separate investigations. One was by the Metropolitan Police, K Division out in Stepney in East London. Uh, and the other was led by the um, detective who worked for the Lambeth Street Police Office. And his name was James Lee. And he was actually probably the most famous detective in Britain at this time. He was the sort of Sherlock Holmes of his day. And he'd been involved in two or three very notorious murder cases, the most famous of which is the Mariah Martin case, which is known as the the murder in the Red Barn, which had taken place out in near Ipswich about seven or eight years earlier. And even today, that's remembered in Britain, at least, as one of the most notorious murders of the 19th century. And, and Lee had solved it. Um, so we're not talking about some you know, useless, incompetent um, watchman being put onto this case. This is a genuine detective who has genuine police skills. And, and uh, he and, and the Metropolitan Police did, a, did parallel inquiries. And what was interesting about this was, was two things. I mean, firstly, they did manage to turn up a number of witnesses who'd been in Bear Binder Lane at the time of uh, the Jane Allsop assault. Um, and the second thing is that Lead also arranged for some experiments to be done um, in the local teaching hospital to see if he could duplicate the way in which it was possible to produce bursts of blue and white balls of flame. And I'll go through those two things one after the other if I if I can. I mean, the first thing is to say that the witnesses in the in the in Bearbinder Lane had a couple of very interesting things to say. The first was that there would appear to have been at least two people involved because um, at the time that Spring Hill Jack was attacking Jane Allsop, his cloak fell to the floor. And after he retreated away from the house, uh, which incidentally the, the, the people in the house saw him do this and described him as sort of heading off over the fields, but certainly not sort of bounding away with sort of his spring heeled leaps. He just, he just ran off as an ordinary human being would have done. But he did it without collecting his cloak, and yet somehow the cloak vanished. So the police or Lee, or, uh, and, and Lee both concluded that there was an accomplice involved who'd picked up the cloak and made himself scarce. 
The second and perhaps even more revealing thing was that two of the witnesses in Bearby and Delane, one was a, a wheelwright who had a, a large wheel actually on his shoulder at the time, and the other was his friend. And they were walking around about 100 yards away from the, the house when this screaming emerged from it. Um, and they were ad- absolutely adamant that they could see quite clearly into this garden. And they said at the police court, you know, had the assault on Jane Allsop been as fierce and, and as intensive as she described you know they they would have known about it and they didn't see this they didn't see any blue and white balls of fire and you know at this point the magistrate sort of injects and says that it doesn't appear that she's got any very bad injuries on her either um Mm -hmm. so there is at least a a suspicion that some of this sort of fierce attack that so sort of made a mark on the 14 literature was actually not exactly imagination but certainly the result of sort of panic and overstatement so I think that there's, you know, it's quite a good thing. It's a very good thing that in this case there was a proper police investigation because it has helped us to put things much more into perspective. Um, you know, and similarly, Lee, when he when he went to the teaching hospital, was able to produce at least blue balls of fire by using a, a technique involving spirits of alcohol. Um, and one of the correspondents I've had over the years when I've been working on this case tells me that that in magic books in that period there was a technique for producing balls of fire which would involve impregnating a small sponge with alcohol holding it in your mouth and then if you breathe out your sort of spiritus vapors near a candle um you can produce what's in in the dark and at very short range appears to be quite a, a surprising ball of fire now now this to me seems to tie together quite well with what the witnesses are saying in other words it's entirely possible given those two statements that jane Allsop, at very close quarters was stunned by what to her was a huge burst of blue and white fire but which would only been visible from a matter of a few feet away in which the witnesses smith and richardson whose their names were who were 100 yards away wouldn't have necessarily seen so there's not necessarily a huge disconnect between those stories but certainly what you don't have to assume is that this is some sort of uh, you know monster with fire breathing dragonish type of abilities i mean the two things that strike one most about these accounts of uh, jane Allsop and lucy scales is that fire is involved in both of them jane also goes to get a candle and she has to give the candle to spring hill jack before he breathes his blue and white balls of fire at her lucy scales encountered somebody who was holding a lantern and who actually held it up at sort of head height before he blew his blue fire into her face. So I think that the witnesses could quite clearly be describing a genuine assault here, which involves somebody using effectively a sort of parlor magic trick. That is very cool. Have you talked to any magicians about trying to reproduce this? I probably need to do that. Yeah, if you know any good ones, let me know. I, I sure do. I do. I do. I do. I'm passed it on. I mean, I genuinely would like to know. I mean, especially with a guy. I need to speak to someone like Ricky Jay, really. I mean, somebody who would know a lot about the the contemporary literature, how widely known this technique, if it existed, was. Because I mean, obviously, one of the key elements of my research has been, you know, is this some sort of fable, or is there some genuine assaults going on? And really, outside the Jane Allsop Lucy Scales assaults. It's pretty hard to be definite that anybody was ever genuinely attacked. I mean, you can try and track down some of these witnesses. And in fact, at the time, people did do this. And there's a very revealing account in a newspaper called The Morning Herald, dating back to January the 10th or 11th of 1838, which says, you know, we sent a reporter out to look into these stories. This is when Spring Hill Jack was just a rumour around the outside of London. Uh, and uh, and he asked people about it. And each person directed, you know, said, I don't know about it, but I can tell you who does, and sent them on to another person who immediately said, no, I don't know anything about it. In fact, but I've heard that this person knows. And of course, this is classic classic urban legend stuff isn't it that it's a friend of a friend of a friend and, and here we have in 1838 before urban legends were ever heard of it you know a, a precise description of the mechanism by which these stories spread and so you know we do have two very distinct sort of paths of inquiry here in that you know spring jack is 95 percent 
effectively, you know, a spread of a legend, which is one type of inquiry. And yet here we have two or three very specific cases of very apparently real, genuine physical assaults. So, you know, the, those two things, I mean, how do they tie together? That's one of the, the main lines of inquiry I've been pursuing all these years. So outside of uh, law enforcement uh, attempts, were there any vigilante attempts to try and capture spring Jack? Well, there were a number. I mean, and we don't, these are not so well recorded. I mean, a, a, a reward was put up for spring Jack. Uh, Edward Codrington, who's one of the most fam- famous admirals of the day, was one of the, the first subscribers. And and so um, there, was a, there, there, there were undoubtedly people um, wandering around London hoping to lay their hands on spring Jack. And we have two or three cases dating to slightly later in 1838, of you know these these vigilante attacks having consequences because you know unfortunate people who were mistaken for Spring Hill Jack were beaten up quite badly and ended up in one or two cases in police courts. I mean, what happened, of course, and again this just muddies the water even further, is that as the story spreads and people start reading these descriptions, there's a definite sort of subsection of society who thinks that sounds pretty cool. I wouldn't mind having a go at that myself. It must be quite fun to frighten some poor kid. Um, and so there are cases of people you know, dressing themselves up with sort of paper masks and so on, pretending to be spring heel Jack, being mistaken for spring heel Jack by the vigilantes oh. and set upon and beaten up. Uh, and this does, as I say, considerably muddy the waters. And of course, going back in London a few years earlier, and this is one of the things that maybe we can talk about later because it does tie in, there had been a case called the Hammersmith Ghost Scare of 1804. Uh, where Hammersmith had been infested by reports of ghosts dressed in white. And um, at the height of this scare, an unfortunate bricklayer who wore, as part of, you know, bricks used to make white dust in those days. And so bricklayers would typically wear white clothes so that the dust wouldn't show on their clothes. He was going home um, going, going home for the evening and he was um, set upon by a vigilante armed with a, sh- a blunderbuss who shot him dead. And there was a very famous murder case involved in this because, of course, in this, his defence was, I genuinely thought this was a ghost. And this actually still bears, even in British in British law, even today, on the justifiable homicide, as you would call it, um, defence, as to whether or not you can actually you know, not be guilty of murder if you genuinely think you're being attacked by a supernatural being or not. Yeah, that's a famous sad case. Yeah, they, they, uh, Brian Dunning covered that on his Skeptoid podcast a little bit. Considering how much of this is legend and, and how much of this is... Um fact how did you approach your investigation considering how much you had to get through how much material there is out there well i mean you know my, my background is that i'm an historian and the historian's tactic here essentially is, you know you try not to form too much an opinion early on and you go and find as much stuff as you can <laughs> so i spent a very large amount of time particularly in the early days before newspaper digitization came in and thank god for that uh you know going through a large stack of old Victorian era newspapers, which I don't recommend to anybody because they were, you know, they're all printed in six point type, no illustrations, no headlines. And you have to sort of scan through the whole thing looking for mentions of this story, which can come in a number of different guises. And it really does, you know, it's instant headache time, essentially. But I've read through 60 or 70 runs of newspapers for, you know, five or six months at a time. It does take a long time to go all through that. That, And over the year, I mean, but when I first published this, this is back in 1996, so as I say, before modern digitization came in, I'd managed to find 45,000 words of original sources in 80 different newspapers. Um, since then, I mean, it's just to give you an illustration of how different Fourteen researches these days. Now that we do have these fantastic new techniques available to us, my current total, you know, on this file is about nine, uh, sorry, two hundred forty thousand words. So I've, you know, more than you know, I've got about five times as much, six times as much material. Uh, a lot of it's duplicates, essentially. But I mean, you know, I, I'm now reasonably satisfied that I have pretty much 
cornered the market essentially in Spring Hill Jack type material, certainly from the 19th century. I mean, there may be some significant other cases there, but given the way that newspapers tended to copy each other quite dramatically, um, you know, they just lift news from one from the other, and you'd, you'd find stories from the Isle of Wight appearing in Glasgow newspapers and things like that. Um, I'm reasonably confident that there probably aren't any major reports that I have missed so far so so now that I have that now I can start making some theories and you know you start by looking at obviously looking at the material and as I say I mean, you effectively observe that you know there are a number of different strands to this there is obviously an element of urban legend and folklore and you know, all these shape-shifting stories um, tie into that and and the interesting thing about them of course is that they don't just appear in newspapers they appear also in sort of contemporary pamphlets which are sort of prototype penny dreadfuls uh, or bloods, as you might know them in the United States, which is sort of you know uh, the the, uh, the sort of uh, tabloid literature of their day, um, and the more extreme stories appear in those. I mean, so the story of Springheel Jack appearing as a lamplighter, walking on his hands with his ladder held between his legs and a big lantern on top of the ladder, or Springheel Jack as a sort of giant baboon up in the trees, or Springheel Jack as a sort of fox-like figure dressed in hunter's uniform. All of those don't appear in newspapers, but they do appear in contemporary pamphlets so you can sort of see that there are you know different strands of evidence depending upon your sort of educational level as to what you would be thinking about spring Hill jack in 1838 if you were a servant or reading one of these penny bloods you might get a bit of a thrill at the, this sort of essentially sort of earlier era sort of 18th century type of folklore i mean this you know you can trace these types of shape-shifting figures back to sort of early devil stories and then you've got this sort of more modern monster who is using essentially sort of, you know, uh, modern science and mechanics and all this stuff. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things about, and the most striking thing when you actually go through this vast pile of Victorian era stuff, is that not a single line in a single story in any of these newspapers say Spring Hill Jack is a supernatural being. I mean, he's known as the suburban ghost, but people don't literally see him as a ghost. Uh, mm. or certainly not the newspaper writers who are covering the story. The newspaper writers who are covering the story see him as a sort of, you know, servant's legend, essentially, and they sort of ridicule him. And the servants themselves largely seem to see him as um, not as a ghost but as a as a nobleman in fact i mean and, th and then again this is a trope which was quite common in those days you know, the, the idea of the sort of overprivileged buffoonish aristocrat with a lot of spare time in his hands who's able to get away with anything because he's rich and well connected is quite a commonplace in those days and spring hill jack was seen by a lot of people as you know a brutal nobleman who um, went around with a gang of other noblemen and this of course explained a lot of the the facts as has had emerged how is spring hill jack able to get from the east end of london to the west end of london how is he able to dress up in all of these remarkable outfits well who can afford a suit of armor how can he afford this this amazing spring heel boots that he's got and all of those things point to somebody very wealthy and in fact there was a, a lead suspect even at that time uh, the marquis of waterford who was one of the sort of great aristocratic thugs of his day and was well known for his sort of outrageous behavior and beating up watchmen and pranking people uh, and he was quite widely believed i think at the time to be spring Hill jack for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call click granger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. 
but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. That sounds like some of the explanations for Jack the Ripper as well. Very true. I mean, you know, this is, as I say, it's a trope, essentially. I mean, it does, does come mm-hmm. up again and again throughout the 19th century, not just with this story, but, you know, in a number of other cases. And, you know, of course, and people have pointed out, and I think there's some truth in this, that in essentially Spring Hill Jack is also a prototype Batman. I mean, he's Bruce Wayne in, in the early Victorian boot. He's got money. He's got a load of high tech stuff that nobody else has got. You know, he, in some of the, um, the Spring Hill Jack Penny Dreadfuls, he actually hides in a cave in a, in a uh, graveyard. So there, there's some quite strong connections between Batman and Spring Hill Jack, in fact. But he's also dressing really fancy and knocking women around. So he's kind of putting the pimp in Pimpernel. Uh, well, yes. No, yeah, <laughs> not, not all his actions are entirely Batman-esque. But, uh, some of them, of course, yeah, I mean, this is the, one of the interesting things about this, the, the way in which this develops. Um, just to, to touch on this briefly, is that you know by the time the Penny Dreadfuls get hold of him, they turn him into a hero. I mean, he is a sort of uh, if he is a nobleman, he's a, a nobleman who's been wronged. You know, he's been deprived of his inheritance or whatever, and he's actually out to protect the heroine. And the only people who get beaten up in the actual uh, in the bloods are you know sort of um, bad guys who deserve it. Essentially, he protects women. In fact, so there's a, there's a pretty seismic shift in the way in which he's portrayed. So, what are some of the other theories about? who or what Springhill Jack was or is? Well, I mean, over the years, a lot of you know, strange things have been suggested. I mean, of course, inevitably, in the 1960s, uh, when Flying Saucer Review started to be published and they heard about the story, he got sort of tied into the whole, is Springhill Jack some sort of UFO uh, occupant? And rather than an elaborate theory was proposed in FSR in 1962, suggesting that he was actually a sort of a stranded alien. I mean, this is... Um, a theory which which posited that he was actually looking for a safe house and he kept knocking on people's doors because he was going to the wrong place because he didn't know London very well. Um, and he was only attacking people when they screamed, essentially. So he was sort of trying to shut them up because he was about to be um, about to be revealed to the authorities. And, you know, this works only in the sense that, you know, the people who wrote this by this stage were getting hold of a very perverted version of the Spring Hill Jack story and adding some elements to it themselves so that, you know, they have Spring Hill, a Spring Hill Jack with sort of weird cropped ears, a bit sort of like Spock in Star Trek. They have a Spring Hill Jack who is much more alien than the original Spring Hill Jack actually was. So there's the UFO connection. I mean, there's the the whole sort of um, escaped from a menagerie type of connection where Spring Hill Jack is supposed to be either an escaped monkey or in some cases an escaped kangaroo even. Um, and there are then you know there's there's the the sort of more esoteric sort of paradimensional type of theory which people like John Keel would have subscribed to where Spring Hill Jack becomes a sort of ultra dimensional figure who's come into this universe from some other universe uh, or from some sort of you know high gravity universe somewhere else which which would allow for his his spectacular leaping ability of course none of which of course you know this is this is the point of my research in a sense that all of that is only really you can only take it even remotely seriously even as a sort of theory if you haven't read all the original sources. 
Mm. Only if you've got the sort of perverted second-hand, let's conflate every room we've heard and then double it type of, you know, Fortean pot boiler, can you actually say, well, okay, if this is the evidence and this is a theory that fits the evidence. The real evidence doesn't point to any of that. The real evidence really only points in two directions, which is that spring Deck is either an urban legend or a person who's decided to do this either because he's drunk or for a prank or both. And neither of those is really a complete and full explanation on itself, in fact. I, I think it's uh, uh, there's a tendency among modern readers to sort of uh, attribute uh, a sort of uh, superstitious ignorance to people from previous centuries. And I know by itself, I'd like to believe that uh, this kind of imaginative uh, attribution by witnesses uh, wouldn't happen now. But I, I saw that in your research, you point to the recent child deaths in the Indian state of Uttar Pradesh being attributed to pig-faced werewolves in a magic flying van. So I, I'm guessing people still report extremely unlikely things now? That's true. And uh, I think you know, I'm not a great believer in sort of Jung's idea of archetypes, but uh, one of the intriguing things about this is, you know, what causes this this figure, a very similar figure, to crop up in so many different times and places? And this is something that I've, I've researched long and hard. And, you know, I mean, to be completely honest with you, I don't have an answer to this question yet. I mean, a lot of spring Jack stories occur in the sort of places you would expect. They occur in Newfoundland, they occur in Australia, they occur in New Zealand, they occur in South Africa. In other words, in places where, where you know, people you know, um, who are emigrating to, from Britain to bits of the British Empire might conceivably carry these stories. And, you know, and, and they are obviously very clear links. I mean, in Newfoundland, there's a figure known as spring Jackson who's very clearly a sort of perverted version of spring Jack. There's just been sort of slightly changing the passage of a bit of time and a bit of, you know, a few miles, and somebody's taken the story from that they heard, you know, from their mother's knee or whatever, and told it again to their kids in Newfoundland, and it's sort of spread around that island. But the interesting thing is that there are also stories of spring Jack in places where there was never any British imperial influence. I, you know, in the, in the 1980s, in Mogadishu, which is in Somalia, which had previously been part of Italian Somaliland, had never been, well, it had been a British territory for about two years in World War II. Um, there was this figure, the tall man, um, who was supposed to be able to leap huge distances and, and would sort of appear at second floor bedroom windows. And clearly that's a spring Jack type of archetype, but he's not known as spring Jack. He's known as the tall man. Similarly in Russia, at the time of the Russian Revolution in St. Petersburg, there were a, a gang of, pe- a gang of uh, criminals called, calling themselves the Leapers, who used to go sort of hopping about and pretending to be able to leap huge distances and, and allegedly actually genuinely wore springs on their feet to terrorize people so they could rob them. And you know, they, were originally, they were tracked down by the Cheka, the original KGB, and executed. I mean, again, they seem, there were police reports describing these guys in the Russian archives. And, you know, they seem to be genuine. But where do they get this idea that it would be a good idea to dress up effectively like Spring Hill Jack from? There's no obvious way in which that story could have got there. And the, the most famous example, perhaps, like this is uh, Perak, the spring man of Prague, who in the later years of World War II was seen by a lot of Czechs as sort of, you know, a defender of, of, of the Czech people against the Nazis. And there were a lot of urban legends and, and folklore in Czechoslovakia, in the Czech Republic, as we would now call it, going back to 1944-45, describing this figure in exactly the same terms as Spring Hill Jack, right down to the kind of iron claws and business. Um, where did it come from? I mean, I've done a lot of work investigating it. Did any British penny dreadfuls get translated into Czech in the early 1900s? And in fact, a lot did, but not the Spring Hill Jack story. So I'm still completely at a loss to know how this story spreads. And it must be, to a certain extent, that there's something atavistic about, about this whole figure. I mean, there's something that just 
grips the human mind that there could be somebody who has this sort of leaping ability and this sort of devilish appearance that that crops up again and again. This is what folklorists call a migratory legend. And yeah, unfortunately, you know, and I got very excited when I heard about that they had this concept because it did exactly describe what I was finding in my research. But when you actually look into it, folklorists have no real explanation as to how it works, how this legend migrates. They just know that it does do. So you get sort of you know, Jack and the Beanstalk type legends in lots of different countries that have no apparent connection to each other. But I, I still don't know. I don't. I would be very pleased to hear from anyone who can explain exactly why this happens, whether there is some form of transmission that I'm not aware of or whether it's just that the human imagination, because we're all human, works in very similar ways. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And and yeah, the those stories, well, you know, it seems like it ties a little bit into memetics, right? Uh, uh, this, yeah, this, I mean, yeah. that's another interesting modern theory, which you know, I need to look into maybe a bit more. But I haven't, again, heard anything that specifically explains how this works. I mean, it's people sort of noticing phenomenon, sort of trying to grope towards an explanation we really haven't, you know, haven't got any firm answers to it yet. But you know, quite plainly, this goes a long way beyond Spring Hill Jack. I mean, it would explain an awful lot of different Fortean phenomena, essentially, wouldn't it? It would. And I, I think, and I, this is a project you'd probably appreciate, but I, I think in some way there ought to be, and I know there are already like a list of tropes that people track in folklore, but it seems like these things are almost, um, could be divided into uh, like discrete packets of, of information um, that you could measure with computer software. The, the reason I say that, so like, th- there's a genetic piece of the story that's the Springhield character. There's a genetic piece that's the fire-breathing character, and that you could look at these legends and just sort of see where the pieces uh, match up across lots of different pieces of the literature. It's it's a, it's something that's been intriguing me for a few years now. I wanted to know if there was a software solution <laughs> that you could Well, I mean, you know, Google's Ngram Viewer, I suppose, would, would allow you to track some sort of mentions of the name and things like that. But yeah, I mean, the actual, you're right. I mean, if, you know, folklorists, of course, have their sort of, you know, um, uh, in folklore index, you know, they, they sort of, you know, assign numbers and letters to all of these stories. And Spring Hill Jack fits into that, that category. Um, but that again just tracks what exists rather than explains why it exists in the in the strange places. It's, it's, it's that it two has. parts, yeah, two mm. parts, or at least two parts. Yeah, I think the closest theory would be uh, in anthropology or linguistics, the idea of diffusion, where you've got some kind of uh, whether it's language or, or whether it's uh, a, some kind of cultural element, and it just diffuses and spreads throughout society, and then uh, you know travels overseas as well, as you were saying to. Uh, um, other countries that have been influenced by Britain insofar as Spring Hill Jack is concerned, um, countries like India and Australia, um, yeah. Singapore, and that would explain the uh, the claims leaping to those countries as well. That's um, absolutely to, right, yeah. To some extent, anyway. Well, and, and much like memetics, the, the, uh, the idea would be the ideas are tr- transported but also mutated. So... Yeah. And I think you, you've probably covered that to some extent, but maybe we could talk about that a little more. So how did, especially the journalism, how did the news reports, in addition to the folklore, shape the way the Spring Hill Jack story emerged? Well, I think this is a very worthwhile point. And it, I mean, it, it does two things. I mean, it, it helps to explain how the story spreads, because, you know, stories that are crop up in one place get copied in newspapers a long way away. And so the story spreads you know, through this, through the new newspaper press and to sort of newly literate classes in a way that hadn't been possible even sort of 40 or 50 years before. And one of the key things that happens in this period is that, you know, the British press 
in order to control it, effectively censor it, although they didn't like to put it that way, had been um, subject to what we called the stamp tax. So everyone who published a newspaper had to have each copy stamped and pay tax on it. And this effectively raised the price of a newspaper to something like six or seven old pence, which at that time was, you know, the whole wage of a daily labour would be about the same amount. So it would be like being asked, you know, to part with 100, 150 bucks for a newspaper these days. Obviously, that meant that only the, the sort of very rich, literate people who could be trusted with this new form of communication uh, were actually buying newspapers. And it wasn't until the sort of mid-1800s that the stamp tax was abolished. And suddenly you get these sort of unstamped papers and this story explodes. And I don't think it's a coincidence that after the original Spring Hill Jack stories of 1838, there's a sort of lull. I mean, they, they go on for a couple of years, but after 1840, there is a lull until the 1860s when not a lot is happening in Spring Hill Jack world. Um, and then there's an explosion of Spring Hill Jack reports again. He's seen in places like Aldershot Army Camp and uh, Colchester Army Camp in the 1870s, for example. Um, and this ties in very closely to the explosion of publications of Penny Dreadfuls and unstamped newspapers. And so I think that quite clearly you could at least posit here that you know the story has been revived and been spread by these much more widely circulated newspapers. And we're talking about a situation where you know the Times newspaper goes from a circulation of you know, five or six or seven thousand to a circulation of, you know, six figures. So um, newspapers are being much, much more widely read, as indeed are Penny Dreadfuls. And you have this whole new literature and this whole new literate class of people who are reading them. And it all ties into this sort of spread in education in a, a sort of industrial revolution society, um, which is something that historians have done a lot of study of. Now, that's one thing. The second thing, and uh, this, again, is something I wasn't aware of when I started my work, and it's become much clearer in the last few years with newspaper digitization because you know you can only search so many blank pieces you know, sort of cramp pieces of paper for things that probably aren't there before you get fed up in my experience but now that we've got this ability to do keyword searches I and mean, we don't have to search for spring heel jack now so you can search for phrases like iron claws or you know red balls of fire or whatever it's going to be um or spring boots is one interesting one and when you start doing that you discover that there are earlier versions of the story in print which nobody had spotted before because nobody had been able to sort of go through every newspaper ever, ever published for years and years um, and the story goes back well i mean the earliest version i've traced actually dates to a pamphlet published in london in 1677 uh which is about a devil appearing in suffolk who has very some close similarities to spring hill jack and you know is, is very agile and can leap over sort of 15 foot high walls but he's in you know, it's a real it's a man who's done according this is a story anyway at the time it's a man who's in league with the devil he signed away his soul in exchange with this sort of ability to to rob people and get away from them for, for three or four or five years um and then there's another gap where probably something's going on but i haven't traced it yet and then we have the hammersmith ghost scare of 1804 where, where again you know there are distinct parallels with the Spring Hill Jack story of 1838. The Hammersmith ghost is described as wearing a cow's hide, for example, which is a phrase which is used in exactly the same terms in the very earliest period of the Spring Hill Jack stories when he's still touring around the villages outside London. He's And he's in all these different guises. One of them is dressed in animal hide. Um, and then in 1809, there's a thing called the Croydon Monster, who's a, a man dressed in sort of military-style uniform with a long cloak, but who can leap about. Um, and in 1825, 1824-25, there's a ghost down on the south coast in Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, who's exactly the same as Spring Hill Jack, down to having large claw gloves and wearing wearing a suit of armour. And again, in Hammersmith in 1833. Now, so, of course, you know, all of this led me to ask, what the heck is going on here? I mean, is this actually some sort of genuine 
supernatural creature who's you know i mean this, this is obviously what the ufo crowd would, would tend to interpret it as i'm sure i don't want to knock them too much but they would tend to see this as, as real stories it's in the newspaper it must be real um and therefore you know spring hill jack has been around for longer than we think actually now this is the key thing you know you need to study how journalism worked in those days and basically you can't consider that newspapers as they existed in 1810 1830 well, like newspapers today with a sort of you know, a large staff of experienced reporters who'd be sort of sent out to do to look into these stories and come back with a, a true story, having interviewed lots of people. That just simply did not happen in the Victorian period. A newspaper in those periods was an editor, and if it was a large national newspaper, it'd be an editor and a parliamentary staff. So you'd have some guys who went along and reported on what was going on in Parliament. And everything else in it, all of the sort of sensational stuff, all of the crime stories, were supplied by freelancers who were called penny aligners in those days. And they would live by their wits. They could, you know, they they could only publish stories if they could get them into the newspapers. The newspapers didn't retain; there was no retainer. They 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 only earned from the stories that were published. And those stories would tend to come in parliamentary recesses when, because you know, the, the newspapers in those days again were not like modern newspapers large with multiple supplements and endless space for news they were very restricted i mean and this is, again goes back to the stamp tax business and this is one of the reasons why they're so crammed and there's so no headlines is that you want to get the maximum amount in this very small space they're normally four pages long so if you've got something going on in parliament then there's no room for these stories but in the parliamentary recesses there's suddenly much less news and the penny aligners come alive and they start sending all these stories if you plot the times in which Parliament is sitting in, in England in this period and Spring Hill Jack stories, there is a direct correlation between when the stories appear and when Parliament is not sitting. That's one interesting thing that I've discovered. The second thing is, what do these penny aligners do when there's no sensational murders happening? And, you know, the answer is they copy out old stories and they sell them again. And, and they they do this repeatedly. So what's happened, almost certainly, is that the Spring Hill Jack of 1838 is exactly the same as the Spring Hill Jack of 1833 and 1825 and 1824 and 1809. He's just got a bit more traction because of the Allsop and the Scales stories, where somebody perhaps has gone and actually done us, you know, this is a copycat crime, essentially. That's all that differ, you know, distinguishes the Spring Hill Jack of 1838 from these earlier versions. So what's probably happened is that, you know, a, a newspaper journalist down on his luck, needing to earn a few a few pounds for his dinner, has gone through some old newspapers and found a, an earlier version of the story and just transposed it to the London of 1837-38. And it's just caught on in this particular case. And then everyone's forgotten over the years I mean, over the years, they forget the 1838 Spring Hill Jack, much less the early ones. But even in 1838, they'd forgotten the earlier ones because it had just been one newspaper story in one newspaper 10 years earlier. Yeah. So journalism um, has a huge amount to do with this. And understanding how journalism works explains how this story spreads. And, and in the Allsop story, he says, I've caught Spring Hill Jack and she goes to get help. I mean, like, like, so she must have like been expected to know who the character was, right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, yeah. the early, you know, I mean, the, the first versions call him Steel Jack. I mean, this is back in December 1837, and it sort of and by by the early January, there were newspaper stories calling him Spring Jack, and then you know, Spring Hill Jack as a phrase actually first comes up in the the Allsop story, but as in terms of its publication. But as you say, some point between early January when it, this phrase Spring Jack appears in the West Kent Guardian and the 22nd of February when Spring Hill Jack appears in the Times, something's happened in London that we can't now trace. And the you know the phrase has been born, but um, they're just giving a name to a sort of you know a, a figure who's existed effectively in newspaper stories for some time. Under very I mean usually before that he's described effectively as a ghost, 
Um, and of course, you know, you don't have to know that much about English literature to know that there is a bit of a tradition of ghosts dressed in armour, for example, which go back to Hamlet's father. So, you know, there are lots of places where people where imaginative, hard up um, journalists could have drawn for a bit of inspiration in an attempt to sell us a sensational story to a newspaper and earn themselves their supper. And so there'd also be the possibility that a lot of these stories wouldn't have been reported to? I think undoubtedly. I mean, you know, the, the, the penny aligners had no way of knowing which of these stories were going to be taken up. And very often they yeah. would write stories and they wouldn't appear because something would have happened in Parliament that you know, meant there was no space for this. Essentially, they were space fillers. Unless the murder had been particularly sensational, effectively, they were just kind of the, you know, the, the, well, and we still see this in newspapers today, don't we? That there are a certain sort of category of story, which are the sort of the gosh wire factor stories that they sort of squeeze into corners to fill a bit of space in between the quotes serious news. And of course, one of the interesting things about it from a journalist's point of view, and I know a bit about it because I was a professional journalist for six years earlier on in my career, is that the standards that are applied to those stories are a lot lower than the standards that are applied to the proper hard news, you know, revolution, volcanoes, parliamentary reporting type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you know, one has to bear in mind how journalists think and how journalists work in assessing all of these uh, accounts. I think it's wonderful we live in a time now where papers like the Daily Mail have higher standards. You've referred to uh, the replication of the blue flames a couple of times. And I, I think I've heard, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that there were some attempts to replicate the spring heels. Yes. Well, I mean, again, we have we have rumours about this. There are, but they're not very... Reliable rumours. <clears throat> One name that I, I mean, I can't really go an entire podcast without mentioning the name of Peter Haining. Uh, he wrote the only book that was, well, until this year, that's been published on Spring Hill Jack. He's a, a British writer, a hack writer, essentially. I mean, he's dead now, so I can probably get away with saying that, um, who anthologised um, 19th century um, sensational literature for a living. Um, and he alleged in his book on Spring Hill Jack, which is full of highly unverified, made-up stuff, as it turns out, um, that in the 1940s, 30s, 40s, the Germans had tried experiments with paratroops equipped with spring heels and had a 95% incidence of broken ankles. Um, I've never found any realist, you know, sort of verifiable source for that story. And you know, I, I've wasted quite a large number of weeks of my life. This is why I'm, I have a bit of a down on Peter Haining, really, trying to track down some of his more implausible stories to some sort of contemporary source. And it's just not possible. I mean, most notorious, like Peter Haining is the source of perhaps the most sensational attack that Spring Hill Jack is ever supposed to have committed, which is in Jacobs Island, which is in a slum in London in 1844, 45. Um, Spring Hill Jack is supposed to have appeared bounding over these sort of rickety houses and the rickety bridges connecting them. And he comes across this teenage prostitute called Maria Davis standing on a bridge grabs her, holds, holds, him up, holds her up over his head and throws her into the muddy ditch where she drowns. And Haining publishes this story and also a, a, an illustration that's supposed to show the recovery of the body of Maria Davis from this ditch. Now, when I first published my Spring Hill Jack research back in 1996 in 14 studies, um, I managed to track down the source of the illustration um, to the Getty Picture Library, and it was just, uh, you know, it, it's actually labelled. When you when you pull it from the, the library, it's labelled on the back. It comes from a, 
a publication called um, Old London or something. I can't remember the exact title, but it's a, a part work. Essentially, it was published in London in the 1870s. Old and New London, it was called. So, um, and it was an engraving just of Jacob's Island, and showing some poor hapless Jacob's Island getting his water from this sewage filled ditch and the, the, what's supposed to be the body of maria davis is actually this person leaning over with a saucepan to scoop up water so um you know Haining had just found this picture and used it in a completely false way and when you actually search the death registers in in london for the name maria davis nobody of that name died in in london in 1844-1845 at all Haining has simply made this story up to make his book a bit fatter and make it a bit more sensational. And, you know, he's only caught now that it's, you know, it's easier to track him his stuff down now than it was in the 18, in 1970s. But he got away with this for years and years. And there were several other examples of this sort. I mean, it, there's a whole section in the book I'm writing about, Springfield Jack, on Peter Haining's sort of fakes and frauds. And we cannot underestimate how much impact Haining in particular has had on the modern 14 literature because, yeah, the, the large majority of the more sensational stories about Spring Hill Jack, the data after the Allsop account are essentially inventions. Don't you hate when you, one man. Don't you hate when your research takes you to having to try to find negative evidence? Well, it's impossible, isn't it? It I mean, is. It's hard because I mean, you know, you have to look at every newspaper published in London and every death record. And even then, someone could say, "Oh, well, you know, she's just a prostitute in the, you know, in the worst slum in London. Of course, her death wouldn't be registered." So, you know, I mean, it is tremendously difficult to do this, and you know, you can. You can, and and I mean one of one of the more the greater triumphs I suppose that I've managed to have here is that the other thing that Haining does, you know, he tries to pin this on the Marquis of Waterford, and the main bit of evidence he uses for this is, you know, uh, he, he alleges that Waterford. Well, he, this is a true story. This part is true. In in the early in in the summer of 1837, just before the Spring Hill Jack story happened. Waterford had gone off to Norway on a bit of a jolly with some thuggish friends of his, and they'd been involved in an altercation. Uh, involving a, a prostitute from a local whorehouse and a night watchman from the city of Bergen. And the night watchman hit Waterford over the head with a mace and nearly killed him. And that, I mean, that definitely did happen. And Haining sort of picks up the story and uses it. I mean, he's obviously looking for something. To say, you know, He wants to be able to show Waterford could have done it. And to do that, he needs to prove that Waterford would have had something against the police because his theory is that Spring Hill Jack is a sort of taunt of the police that Waterford came up with. And so he, he suggests that... Um, that Springhill, that Springhill Jack comes from this animus, and that Waterford was really angry about the policeman in Bergen who hit him over the head. And he does this by printing an extract from the memoirs and correspondence of Sir Frederick Johnston, um, who was one of Waterford's friends at the time. And, and he relates how they were on this stagecoach back from, you know, they landed in Aberdeen and they travelled down to London in the stagecoach, plotting, you know, some some pranks. He doesn't. I mean, he's, Haining is clever enough not to literally say we're going to invent this character called Springheel Jack, but he quotes Johnson saying, you know, we're going to come up with this sort of, you know, this prank for the police. And this is like three or four weeks before Springheel Jack appears for the first time in the outskirts of London. So it's kind of the smoking gun, effectively, in Haining's account. Now, when you look into Sir Frederick Johnson, you discover a couple of interesting things about him. The first thing is that Haining depicts him writing this book in his old age, sort of looking back fondly on the indiscretions of his youth. In fact, fact, Frederick Johnson died in a riding accident in 1842 at the age of only 35. So he wasn't allowed to write in the memoirs and correspondence of Sir Frederick Johnson. Um, and so, you know, you can you can point to these types of sort of huge howler that Haney commits, not thinking that people are going to be easily be able to check this in later years to sort of show that some of his evidence is obviously made up. But it's a lot easier now than it was and for years. People just looked at Haney's book and essentially that you, you, you would have seen this, Blake, obviously in other cases, you know, 
and I as a child and an early teenager had had this in spades. If somebody's published a book on it, surely they've done done the work. They they they, they must have done the serious research. They wouldn't have put it into print if they didn't believe it. Now, obviously, you know, <laughs> you mature. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> you realise that maybe there's another motive of publishing the sensational stuff, like money. But you know, when you're a kid, you're not thinking about this sort of thing. And Haining got away with this for years because people, you know, he had a reputation as someone who'd read a lot of you know old Victorian books. And so, if he's citing a book that no one else has heard of, it's probably because you know he's read more books than anybody else of yeah. course now we can use computerized catalogs to say there is no trace in any news in any catalog the british museum uh, library the library of congress you know the world cat have no trace of this book the memoirs and correspondence of frederick johnson at all and so we can you know in a matter of seconds sort of expose him but that just wasn't possible in 1970s when he wrote his book and he got away with an awful lot it's an incredibly powerful tool this whole digital uh, transformation i mean it's totally changed uh, the way I do research, and it's made it much more pleasant because I could do a lot of it from my house. <laughs> well, absolutely, certainly it doesn't give you a headache quite in the same way as pouring over those old Victorian newspapers do. Well, I, I would love to. I would love to pour over old newspapers, but um, like for in me, short bursts. Right, right, right. But I mean, just when you know there's something there, yes. But when you, mm. it's what you say about the negative evidence. When you just think I've got to go through this run just in case as a story, yeah, that's, that's yes. when it gets a bit needle cheap. in a haystack. <laughs> Yeah, right. So, but you know, as a historian, one has to do it. But you know, it's with you know, as I say, with a heavy heart. And this is why I'm I'm happy to expose Haining now because he caused me to waste quite a few weeks of my life yeah. in the search for stuff that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Fist shaking is not enough. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's possibly getting it in the neck from me. So, why uh, has there been such an enduring interest in Spring Hill Jack, in your opinion? It obviously goes back to what we were talking about earlier. This is a figure who vividly captures people's imagination. He's quite unique from that perspective, I think. Um, you know, he has a whole set of, of um, uh, talents and powers that are essentially folkloric fairy tale. It's like the sort of you know the guy in the seven league boots essentially is the nearest fairy tale parallel, perhaps. And this this attracts people's imaginations in a way that you know just doesn't doesn't uh, you can't underestimate so is what i'm trying to say how much of an impact this this remarkable figure has and i mean there were two things to say i mean we've covered some of this already but i'll say two more things i mean firstly you know he's apparently never caught so that means you know the mystery is never solved and secondly mm-hmm. he is you know as, as i mentioned earlier i think you know he's so ubiquitous and he goes on and on never apparently changing and that has to imply until you start applying a bit of skepticism at least that he's not an ordinary human being. And those two things together kind of, you know, form the, the core of the Spring Hill Jack mythos. One very interesting thing I did discover in the course of searching Google Books, in fact, I think it was, um, was that there was a Spring Hill Jack scare in the 1870s in Kensington, which is the part of London, posh part of West London, where I actually now work. Um, where and, and it was written in the memoirs of this um, elderly actor who was looking back on his boyhood and recounted this sort of, and they hadn't even apparently got into the newspapers actually, but you know, in Kensington, at least amongst boys of his age, there had been this huge scare. So, you know, Spring Hill Jack was breaking into their houses um, and you know, committing all sorts of mayhem. And all these tall stories arose about, it. you know, he'd been seen leaping over this wall that was subsequently measured to be 15 feet high. Now, the interesting thing about that is that in this one case, Spring Hill Jack was actually caught, the police caught a burglar. And he and and the guy says, you know, the remarkable thing was he wasn't anything like Spring Hill Jack. He was short and not very um, <laughs> not very agile at all. And he hadn't been leaping over these walls. He'd been kind of laboriously scrambling over them. And so in this, you suddenly get this 
this is what's happening all the time, you know, except that the guy isn't being caught. You know, this is a there's a sort of elaboration element to Spring Heel Jack that's going on. And here in this one instance, we finally got, you know, that he's unmasked. We, you know, there's a real figure behind it. It's, he's not trying to be Spring Hill Jack. He's just an ordinary burglar. People are talking about it. They're sort of elaborating the stories. And, you know, they, they associate Spring Hill Jack with it because he's not being caught and he seems to be quite agile. And those are two things that Spring Hill Jack does. So the Spring Hill Jack name comes in. And it's just built, built out of nothing. And you just look at that and you think, well, this is obviously probably what's happening in most of these other cases where I don't have this solution because the guy hasn't been caught or, you know, nobody's written about it and made the connection because nobody thought to ask these 10-year-old boys what they were calling this character. You know, and there's an element that says this is probably happening a lot and not just in the case of, of Spring Hill Jack, but again, you know, UFOs, late monsters, all the great fortune phenomena are probably, to a quite significant extent, you know, this is one of the great moments in my career, actually, the discovery of this, because it's so applicable, you know, once you realise this is how it happens, mm-hmm. to the vast majority of what we study, really. Yeah. And uh, I think with uh, Jack the Ripper, there were a number of cases of people who made false admissions. Was there anyone who did that uh, with spring Jack to say that they were spring Jack? Well, there were in the you know, in the eighteen thirty seven thirty eight scare. There were four or five people who were caught pretending to be Spring Hill Jack. I mentioned one of them earlier on, you know, mm-hmm. being beaten up by vigilantes. So, I, mean, I don't think that they were claiming to be Spring Hill Jack in the sense of actually, you know, um, wanting people to believe they're some sort of supernatural demon. But they were imitating him. That was seen to be the, the more common thing. I mean, again, you know, one of the things that you have to bear in mind here, and it comes as a revelation, I think, to a lot of to me. I mean because this isn't the period of history that I normally specialize in, actually, um, is, you know, you, you tend to look back on these people as they're like, you know, they're like us only with gaslight instead of electric light. But otherwise, they're basically like us. That is simply not true. You have to understand, you know, how different it was then, in particularly in terms of, you know, say, the entertainment factor. Now, here today, we spend all our time complaining, certainly if you've got a daughter like me. Why are you on Facebook? Why are you always on that computer? You know, you know go and read a book. Um, you know, but they're, you know, people are sort of saturated with entertainment, essentially. That was not the case in Victorian England. And as you read these old newspapers, you realise, bloody hell, I mean, there are, you know, a lot of people's idea of fun in the long, dark winters in Victorian England was to go out and pretend to be a ghost and scare a few of their neighbours. That was high entertainment for a certain class of, you know, sort of Victorian working class England. And they are not all, not just Spring Hill Jackson, but, you know, fake ghost stories are a staple of the press in this time there are dozens of people going out putting themselves in a sheet you know maybe not quite maybe not for a bit after the hammersmith ghost was shot but you know i mean that gets <laughs> off and people start doing it again yeah they get dressed up in a sheet and they go and jump out going boo-hoo you know from behind a wall and a lot of these stories get conflated into spring hill jack stories when spring hill jack is the big bogey figure there's a case in peckham which is a part of south london in 1872 where you know, if you look at the, and this again is a very, very interesting discovery. When you look, I mean, Haining mentioned the Peckham case, so I went looking for it. In the News of the World, which is, you know, one of the worst style of British tabloids, it's, I mean, you've probably heard of it even in, in the States because there was, there was a huge scandal that's been shut down literally in the last couple of years for, for getting involved in all sorts of naughties. But, you know, it existed in the 1800s as well. And it referred to this case in Peckham and called it, called the, the ghost there, Spring Hill Jack. When I went to the local newspapers from Peckham in that period, they were full of stories of a ghost, but none of them mentioned Spring Hill Jack at all. But what they all all made it pretty clear was it was some local guy quite literally with a sheet over his head. Now, again, you know, 
if you re- if you read Peter Haining, or even if you are reasonably conscientious and go and look at the news of the world for the 1872, you think this is a Spring Hill Jack story. It must be linked to the 1837-38. They're calling him Spring Hill Jack, you know, therefore it must be linked. In fact, they're not linked at all. I mean, it's just a name. It's a label. And it's only being applied by some lazy journalist in the News of the World office in London. And the locals see it completely differently. They don't see it as a Spring Hill Jack type case at all. It's a bloke in a sheet who's pretending to be a ghost. Yeah. And they call it the Peckham ghost. And there is no connection whatsoever to Spring Hill Jack. So, again, you know, this is this is another element of how the newspapers and lazy labelling particularly work. And, and the word Spring Hill Jack, the phrase, is applied throughout this period. If you read... The secondary sources. You invariably get the the information from them. This is you know, Spring Hill Jack appeared in London in 1837, and in Aldershot in 1877, and in Everton in 1904. And it's by just saying it's Spring Hill Jack singular, it's the same figure. And this is one of the scary things about it. If you're a ten-year-old boy, you know somebody's identified this as the same figure. When you go back and look at it, this isn't the case at all. Spring Hill Jack is a word, a phrase which is applied to any burglar who can't be caught any agile criminal gets called a spring heel jack you go back to the newspapers at the time and they're full of phrases like there are a lot of these spring heel jacks about so so when studying spring heel jack before attributing him to all these cases be careful to not leap to conclusions oh. <laughs> nice. i don't think i've got a word to say after that appalling pun <laughs> you, you lost me right? <laughs> You, Mike, you mentioned that uh, you're working on a book about spring Jack. So can you tell us about some of the projects that uh, you're uh, working on right now? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm rather guilty about this because I've promised, I promised this for quite a few years. And it's, it's kind of my life's work and I don't want it to come out prematurely. And it's one of those sort of never-ending projects where there's always some other thing that you could potentially do to, to link it together. But you know, I really need to draw a line under this because I, I think, as I say, that with the digitalization, I can now at least be reasonably sure that although I'm undoubtedly missing a ton of stuff it's probably not vastly going to change my conclusions so i'm going to make an attempt to try and get it out um what i've done here i've I've basically brought in a bunch of friends and colleagues who know a lot more about some of these elements than i do and i've used them to help me investigate some of the elements i had not previously been able to sort of comprehend so i've got a, a friend of mine called john adcock who's a canadian specialist in um penny dreadfuls and sensation literature in the 19th century who understands the way in which the victorian journalism uh, worked far better than I do. And he's written an essay which explains how Victorian journalists got their story. And I've just summarised it for you earlier, and you were very excited by this uh, the, the discovery. It's really John's and not mine. I should give him full credit for it. I've worked with Dave Clark, who's well known as a UFO writer, a sort of respectable one. Um, he, he works also, you know, with the British National Archives and putting out um, their, their UFO files, for example. And he's written for, as a folklorist. He has a PhD in folklore, and he's, he's written the folklore background. And I've written also um, with with a, guy, a couple of guys, Paul Chambers and um, and his colleague Mike Davis, and they've done some genealogical research actually, which is actually also again quite fascinating because you know, and he's he's an experienced genealogist. Um, Paul Chambers is, and he t- he took all of the names I discovered in the 1837-38 newspapers and tracked them down in the birth, marriage, and death records. And this was very interesting indeed because what he was able to do was show that. Uh, the one, the ones who are typically associated with the more sensational stories didn't exist. You know, the, all these names come out. They, you know, he saw Spring Hill Jack, or he, his daughter was attacked by Spring Hill Jack, and these are the people who don't exist. And he, hence, they must be inventions of local, you know, newspaper newspaper men. Um, so there are all sorts of elements in here. I, I tried to make it a multifaceted book, um, which I couldn't have done by myself, and which sort of I hope give the picture of the 
the whole case in the round. So it's, I, I hope it was going to be a, a fairly worthwhile book. And certainly, I think I can safely say it's going to be well over 700 pages long. There's probably <laughs> never been such an intensive study of one smallish Fortean phenomenon. Uh, you know, which is going to, and we're going to republish all of the original sources fully footnoted, and it's going to be kind of the Bible, I hope, and I will continue to update it because I mean, with modern print-on-demand technology, I mean, I'm publishing this myself. Um, I can just go on producing new editions as I find new material and updating it, and that's the plan essentially, as long as I last, so that it will become a sort of resource that you know, I mean, again, I'm I'm hoping it will become a resource that won't just be of interest to people who are interested in Spring Hill Jack, but also might teach a few possible answers to people who are interested in other strange phenomena and haven't looked into them in quite the same way as we've done yeah that's great Very because, exciting yeah the um uh, the historical context would be there and then yeah, i'm doing that giving it uh you know a, a much more full picture than any of the literature so far uh, that, yeah. that's fantastic plus you know it does really or it should i don't know if it will but it should tie into that whole steampunk aesthetic that's going around these days i th- this this whole spring hill jack character yeah, it fits I'm right into that, you know. So <laughs> it does. And I mean, Perak, the, the, the Spring Man of Prague, is, is another example. I mean, there are a lot of Czech steampunky type of interpretations of him, actually. And we've got a guy called Petr Janacek, who's, uh, who's a, a Czech folklorist, who's written two very, very good papers on the Spring Man of Prague, who's a very little understood character. So there's lots of good stuff. I mean, it is worth waiting for. And I'm going to try and keep the price down as low as I can as well. But I've just got to, everyone else has finished their stuff except for me. But my, my material is about 70 or 80,000 words long, which is kind of a small book in itself. And I'm only about halfway through writing it. So I need a few more weeks. <laughs> actually, actually free time, which doesn't really exist for me at the moment. Really. No, I, I've got the same problem. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, so, so we've, uh, on Monster Talk, we, we try to finish our interviews by asking guests uh, to name their favorite monster. So, Mike Dash, what's your favorite monster? Well, I'm not allowed to name Spring Hill Jack. Sure. Why not? Yes. <laughs> Essentially, what I mean, I have devoted half my life to it. Now, I mean, the other the other one, I guess, would be Morag, the monster of Loch Morar. Um, I mean, one of the things that characterizes me as a historian and as a Fortian is that I shy away from the, the mainstream as far as I possibly can. And as a historian, the thing that would bore me almost to tears would be the idea of spending three years of my life writing a biography of Henry VIII or Hitler, because everyone does it. So my career has been blighted by this in the sense that, although I know lots of very interesting stories, they're not really sort of bestseller type things because they're so obscure. And similarly, Morag, who's the monster of Loch Mora, is a very interesting lake monster because the, it's the one lake, essentially, where there is a monster tradition that goes back well before the tradition of the Loch Ness monster, um, which it, it erupts in 1933 and perverts the whole course of lake monster studies because all monsters thereafter are interpreted in, in the sense of being versions of the Loch Ness monster. Um, Morag, there are there are reports from Loch Morag which date back to the late 19th century. I mean, I'm not suggesting necessarily for a second that there's a genuine living and breathing monster there, but there's a tradition of monster reports from Loch Morag that is completely independent from Loch Ness, uh, and which I've spent a long time um, studying because, because of that. And uh, again, I'm hoping to eventually publish something on this. But uh, I mean, I also recommend to anybody who is touring the Highlands of Scotland, that Loch Morrow is considerably more beautiful than Loch Ness. Um, it's a much more remote place. It's only got a few people living on it. It's got um, sort of wonderful, beautiful, softer hills, and the water itself is very clear, unlike Loch Ness. And some of the interesting things that come out of Loch Morrow are reports of sort of things seen on the bottom of the lake, um, which you can't do in Loch Ness, where there's you, know, you can't see your hand in front of your face at two-foot depth because there's so much peat in the water there. So Loch Morrow is a, is a very interesting and beautiful place and well worth a visit and well worth studying, in my opinion. I, I, it sounds like a great overview, more or less. 
Yeah, I'm going to let I think we're going to have to have Mike back to talk about that too. That sounded great, yeah. So thank you for coming here today and talking with us, Mike. This was a great episode. I've been super excited about putting this Very up. Very fascinating. This, this thank you. Right up Good our alley. Time. I enjoyed it. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today you heard Karen Stolls, Noah Blake Smith, interview Mike Dash about the Victorian figure known as Springhill Jack. Be sure and check the show notes for links that will give you even more info about Mike Dash and this fascinating topic. Monster Talk is produced with the assistance of Skeptic Magazine. However, the opinions and ideas and terrible puns heard here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or sensibilities or sense of humor of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you enjoy Monster Talk, you might consider donating to our transcript project. There are links at monstertalk.org, and the transcripts help us make Monster Talk easier to find and easier to reference on Wikipedia. I'm doing my best to get more episodes out in 2013, and on behalf of all of us here at Monster Talk, we appreciate your devotion and your patience. Do you want to talk with other Monster Talk listeners and have fun discussions about monsters and monster news? You should join our Facebook group. Either search for us on Facebook or use the link at monstertalk.org. We'd love to chat. You can also find our contact information and social media links there. Monster Talk theme song is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Moonster Talk, the science cheese show about cheese. Are you going to do the scary voice? <laughs> Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.